1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Dave Zirin about his new book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Dave is one of the most important voices in sports journalism today. He is the longtime sports editor for the nation. He has written 10 books, including titles such as What's My Name, Fool? A People's History of Sports in the United States. Welcome to the Terror ter- Dome. Uh, he wrote an excellent book with John Carlos. Uh, he wrote a book about Jim Brown. You may know him as a frequent guest on ESPN's Outside the Lines. They, Dave also has his own podcasts. I could go on and on. I think you could tell by my tone. I'm a big fan of Dave, um, and it's a thrill to have him on the podcast. So, Dave, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm
0: thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Dave, before we get to the book, I... I wanted to ask you, you know, you've carved out a space in this, in this world where sports and politics collide. And, uh, you know, for many people who are politically active or at least politically aware, there's a triggering event, something that draws them into that world, whether it be 9 11 or Vietnam or the George Floyd murder. Was there a particular event that drew you into the political side of sports? Oh, yes,
0: definitely. And um, it's one that stays with me. You know, a lot of times when people become political, it's over a a long process of many years and a lot of small events. And that's certainly true with me. Like if you said to me, why did you get into politics? I would say, oi, where do you want to begin? You know, start with growing up and then get through a million different experiences. That slowly turned me into wanting to do something to change the world. But when it comes to sports, there was really only one moment in bringing politics and sports together. And that was when Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf made the decision in the mid nineties to not come out for the national anthem. Uh, When that took place, I was in college at the time. Um, You know, That was back before phones, if we can remember such a time. So to follow that particular story, we would all have to gather. I kind of miss these times, like in a common room on in the dorm where the only TV was, and we would watch Sports Center at 7 o'clock, and we would always make sure to get there by 6.59 so we could see the latest news with Raouf, talk it, talk it through collectively. I remember talking to people in the dorm, like, what do we think about a player not coming out for the anthem? Why do we play the anthem at sporting events in the first place? What does it say about the tradition of athlete activism? And do we see Raouf as standing in the tradition of people like Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King? I mean, these were new discussions to me. I'd never thought of uh, sports, which I had grown up loving and playing, as being a potential uh, avenue for people becoming politicized. And so I quickly set about trying to learn about as much as possible as I could about this history and tradition. and. One of the, another key event was I found a book called Muhammad Ali in the Spirit of the Sixties. It's actually called Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali in the Spirit of the Sixties by Mike Marcusy. And that book, because it was written with the verb of good sports writing, but was also really political, that changed me too. Because so I went from being like having this extreme interest in the history and doing a lot of reading to then being like, well, wait a minute, maybe I could do this for a living uh the way Mike Marqusey is doing it and th- that led me down this road. Uh, it was all done after that point. Uh,
1: you raise you raise a, a great point um why why do we sing the national anthem at sporting events? Um so why do we, Dave?
0: Well, it's interesting. <sighs> it 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 doesn't run as deep into the marrow of this country as people think because oftentimes people say, well that's the way we've always done it. So why shouldn't Colin Kaepernick stand for the anthem you know why should he go against that tradition and you know the easy answer to that is well NFL players have actually only been coming out for the anthem since like 2007 and it was part of a political partnership a financial partnership between the Pentagon and the National Football League that's a total result of post 9/11 imperial politics so that that's an easy answer about this whole idea of oh we've always done it why shouldn't Kaepernick do it But when you're talking about, like, in sports itself, uh, you start to see the anthem being played during times of war. So it's played during World War I, uh, and then it's played again during World War II. But then after World War II, what do you have next? You have the Cold War, which was really a period of permanent war between the United States and the Soviet Union and a battle to reorganize and redivide the world on the basis of which country you stand with. And as the U.S. was entering this era of kind of permanent forever war, the anthem became something that was just adopted after World War II and remained. It wasn't pulled away because D-Day happened and the war was over. It became this continual part of our sporting culture, and not just at the professional level. The Boy Scouts adopted it then. The Little League adopted it then. It was part of an entire kind of patriotic indoctrination process of which sports uh, could be used uh, very effectively to deliver that patriotism into the veins of the youth of this country.
1: Uh, I, I'm fascinated that you brought up abdul Rauf and to hear the impact that that event had on you. Um, I, I, I was young at the time but I, I've I certainly find that whole experience very interesting and I wanted to kind of follow up on that you know you wrote this book which we'll get into about the Kaepernick effect um which we'll talk about what that means but there wasn't really to my recollection and I'm I, I believe certainly to the magnitude there was't there was no such Abdul Rauf effect and you know this was about 20 years I don't remember the exact year but it was about 20 years apart Abdul Rauf and Kaepernick yeah. What was the difference in the way
0: those were received? Why
1: was there not a, an Abdul Rauf effect?
0: Well, it's a great question. Um, there, there are two big reasons for the difference that I mm. see. I mean, first and foremost, when Colin Kaepernick uh, first sat and then took a knee during the anthem, he did it as part of what was a national movement that had been going on at that point already for several years you know, a national movement that was birthed in the fires of Ferguson after the police killing of Michael Brown, a national movement whose seeds were planted after George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin, this movement for black lives. So when Kaepernick did it, he wasn't alone on an island. And then the other big difference is that uh, social media exists. And so the it was able to spread very quickly through social media and it was able to find support through social media. When Abdul Raouf decided not to come out for the anthem, there were no avenues for him to receive support. And sports writing back then, unlike today, I would argue, was a very, very top-down operation. And so you had a small group of people in different cities, particularly in the city where uh, Raouf played in Denver, that were able to use their platform to attack him and to marginalize him and to keep him in a position of isolation. And then there's, lastly, there's the fact that unlike Kaepernick, so I gave two reasons, social media and the existence of a movement, but let me throw a third one at you too. Um, Colin Kaepernick said explicitly, look, my protest is not about the United States. It's about police violence and the importance of us to do something about it, and I take my knee during the national anthem because there is a gap between what this country promises and what it actually delivers. So that was the message of um, Colin Kaepernick. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was very much saying, no, this actually is about this country. Uh, He was asked about why he did it. And uh, he was asked the question, don't you realize that flag is a symbol of freedom and democracy throughout the world? And Raouf answered, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. And this is a a very, very powerful response. In the middle of the 1990s, Bill Clinton is president. There's no uh, movement to speak of in the same regard as what Colin Kaepernick had. So Raouf really did find himself alone on the island and suffered for it greatly. He was drummed out of the NBA. And I'll tell you, one of the great, Privileges of my professional life was being able to interview uh, Raouf and tell him what, what he meant to me personally. And what's important why I mentioned that interview is that, you know, I started doing this work like in 2002, and I was never able to get uh, Raouf to do an interview because I was able, I had contact info for him, we communicated, and he just said he was not interested that that chapter of his life mm-hmm. was done. But when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, one of the things that it did was that it revived this whole history. And then people started to talk about not just Mahmoud abdul Rauf, but people like Craig Hodges, people like a track star from the 50s named Roseanne Robinson, certainly people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos from the 68 Olympics, because there was this interest in what the history represented. And Raouf found himself feeling much more confident about what he did. He was never not proud of what he did. He was always proud, but he also was somebody who felt very much under siege. And th- this emboldened him and gave him a shield of strength. And it put him in a position of saying, Yeah, I want to do an interview about what happened with me. Let's talk about it. Right. Why was it important for you to write this book about the Kaepernick effect? Well, because hmm. I had started for me of having this great concern that the stories I have in this book uh, simply would not be told or remembered otherwise. See, the book is about, as you say, the Kaepernick effect. And if anything, Kaepernick is in lower, lowercase letters and effect is in capital letters. Because it's not really a book about Colin Kaepernick. It's a book about the people he affected, namely a generation of young athlete activists at the high school, college, and professional level, although much of the book is spent on high school. Of, play, of athletes who took a knee during the anthem and took the fight for racial equality and against police violence and took it to their hometowns. And, um, and so I wanted to tell the story first and foremost, very humble reason, I thought that these stories would get forgotten. And we would just remember Colin Kaepernick and not remember all of these young people who I was thinking had a big impact on their communities when they took a knee. At least that was my idea. That was my suspicion. And when I started calling people and hearing their stories, it turned out, yeah, they did have a huge impact on their community. Sometimes it was very negative. They received a hell of a backlash. They received violence, death threats, all kinds of things. And sometimes, you know, they, they had their, their coach turn against them, their teammates turn against them. But sometimes it was incredibly positive and they were able to make substantive change in their communities by starting conversations about racism and police violence. Now, that was my first goal in doing the book and the book was just about finished in the spring, early summer of 2020. And then the police murder of George Floyd happens. Then you have the largest demonstrations literally in the history of the United States. And I went back and called the people who I'd interviewed to ask them how they were doing and what they were doing. And they all were either uh, in the streets or organizing people to get in the streets. And that had me thinking more about the book and had me conceive of it in a different way. And I started to feel like, okay, many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020 and these huge protests but one of those roads runs straight through the athletic fields of the United States and that to me felt historic you've got the largest demonstrations ever and these small demonstrations in these small towns were in a lot of ways the political weather vane for what was to come and then and so that so that changed how i wrote the book now since i've written the book i've also thought a lot about the backlash that's been taking place to the protests of 2020 namely these um, the hysteria about so-called critical race theory being taught in schools, this total white reactionary right-wing backlash against the idea that we teach about history and talk about racism. And I started to think that all the people I interviewed were also kind of like the canary in the coal mine in terms of the backlashes that they received. And maybe if we'd been paying more attention to all of these tiny little protests on athletic fields in the United States – maybe we would be a little less surprised or taken off guard by first the protests in 2020 and then the backlash in 2021. When you spoke to these people, you know, after
1: the the George Floyd situation exploded, um, was there, I mean, I'm sure there was no universal reaction, but was there a sense of vindication among many of them that, Hey, this, this is what we were trying to tell you. This is what we were, you know, I mean there, there's this imagery, right? And and the, I've seen t shirts of it of of it's strikingly how strikingly similar the image of of Kaepernick taking a knee is to uh, to the officer who killed George Floyd, him taking a knee and, and the, the imagery is as I said is so striking. Was there a sense
0: of vindication among among these people? Yeah, the, the symmetry of the brutal symmetry of Kaepernick's knee and Officer Derek Chauvin's knee is something that uh, is startling. And actually, if you go to George Floyd Square, as it's called in Minneapolis, um, there's a big mural of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. So this was something people in the movement, they they got that right away, that juxtaposition, Mm. and how important it was to see that juxtaposition because Kaepernick's taking a knee is a form of nonviolent dissent. And to see that position of nonviolent dissent become a position of murder, of racist murder, of police murder, which is exactly what the knee was about in the first place, was really striking. Now, as far as the reaction of folks, uh, it was divided. I mean, some people said, yeah, you're damn right I feel vindicated. We were trying to say there was a problem in this country. Well, here you go. Now the entire country is waking up to it. And then there were other people who said well i'll only feel vindicated when we actually get some action some legislation some justice so a variance i can tell you speaking for myself i'm very sympathetic to the people who did feel very vindicated because oftentimes when they did their protests they were very isolated they were very alone they didn't have a lot going on for them and to see all of a sudden oh What I was doing was actually a precursor to the largest protests in U.S. history. I mean, that had to feel at least very satisfying.
1: It's evident for me in your book what a huge impact that Kaepernick
0: had on so many of the people that you interviewed. What did he represent to those people? Well, it's interesting because people think Colin Kaepernick represented some great inspiration. But I can tell you from the reporting I've done and the people i talked to, Colin Kaepernick was less an inspiration for folks than he was a method, a language. I mean, these are people who are already upset, who are already angry, who are already looking for a way to register their own sense of protest. But if you're in a small town like, like uh, Beaumont, Texas, or if you're in a suburb of Cleveland like Brunswick, hmm. Ohio, what are you really supposed to do if you're that upset? What are you going to do, a, a strongly worded tweet a Snapchat, I mean, that just a TikTok video. I mean, that just was, oh, first TikTok wasn't around, but that, that wasn't enough for these folks. They wanted to do more. They felt it in their gut that they needed to do more, but there was nothing really to do. And so Kaepernick takes a knee. They're like, okay, that's something I can do. Because what they realized, which I think the right wing in this country realized too, is that there's a tremendous power and a tremendous tremendous universality to taking that knee. Uh, It immediately becomes something that you can replicate. It immediately becomes something that you can do. Uh, It immediately becomes something that uh, is like a language of dissent that, uh, that can be spoken in any community. And so that's what Colin Kaepernick represented. If you're talking about actual inspirations and motivations, far less was it Colin Kaepernick than it was Trayvon Martin who you know, was was killed in 2012, teenager by George Zimmerman, stalked and killed. Uh, for We got to remember that we're almost at the 10th anniversary now of the killing of Trayvon Martin. So the people I interviewed in the book, a lot of them were 10, 11, 12 years old uh, when Trayvon was killed. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it had a marking effect on them that to me was extremely similar to stories I've read and documentaries I've seen about the civil rights movement in the fifties and the effect that the killing of Emmett Till had on a generation of civil rights protesters is, very similar.
1: Mm. Yeah. I found the Trayvon Martin thing very interesting, if only because there, there have been a number of, <clears throat> um, you know, of, of killings of, of black, young black men, um, in the past several years that have infuriated, um, not just the African American community, myself included, um, but it, it seemed from your it seemed from your book that that Martin in particular really struck a chord with with young people. Is it what is it that he was young himself? Is that he was just a young a young guy wearing a hoodie, eating skittles? Is why why do you think the Martin thing in particular really resonated with with so many of those activists? Well, that, that's
0: certainly part of it as uh, his youth. But there, of course, have been people like Tamir Rice, um, other young people sure. killed. I think that the, the Tamir Rice story was certainly something that people talked about, um, particularly those who lived in the Midwest, um, Rice being killed in Ohio. But the, 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 the thing about Trayvon's case that so affected them was, first of all, it, w- it was really the first in 2012 of this era, to be clear, uh, that this generation connected with. And then the other thing that connected with it, and this makes it so much like Emmett Till, is that you know, the fact that Trayvon wasn't killed by a police officer, that he was killed by somebody who was a wannabe police officer. And so unlike when police officers kill people and everybody kind of rolls their eyes at the thought that there might be some sort of justice or punishment, uh, people felt that there absolutely would be some form of justice. I mean, my God, he stalked him, brought a gun, killed him. How do we possibly call that self-defense? Shouldn't he have to pay for taking the life of this young man? And that didn't happen, of course. And so, you know, that's very similar to the Emmett Till case, where it's not only the killing that resonates, it's not only the horror of what was done to this young person, it's it's not the snuffing out of a life solely, it's also the fact that you can't turn to the courts for justice. And so the objection... And the political fire and the political clarity becomes aimed not just at these individual vigilante killers or the individual cop, for example, but but you start looking at it systemically. So it's not just George Zimmerman's reaction to seeing Trayvon Martin and how racist that was. It's also the reaction of the courts and systemically and how difficult it is to wrest justice from the system.
1: You, you know, you interviewed, um, you divide the book up into high schools, college and and professional athletes. Um, And man, I mean, I found it so inspiring, Um, you know, looking at, um, because of course, the first word that comes to mind is courage, right? It takes tremendous courage at any of those levels. It's in, in different ways, you know, we all know the the awkwardness and the difficulty of navigating life as a teenager in this country, probably any country, but just being a teenager and and the social pressures that come with that, um, that extends to the college level. Then of course at the professional level, people's livelihoods are at stake. Um, And so it it takes a great deal of courage and every single, every single one of those stories I found inspiring Um, as well as, you know, some of the, some of the kids, you know, the, the, the wisdom, the sophistication for high school students. I was, you know, I'm I'm in my forties. I'm, I'm barely getting to where they are at 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, was there, was there any one or two or, uh,
0: individuals
1: who really stuck out to you, who really impressed you with their, with their
0: story? Very much. A couple people impressed me so much. And it's hard to choose just a couple, honestly, because, You know, all these folks trusted me and spoke to me. And so I I feel like a great gratitude towards all of them. And just a quick thing based on something you said is that I started writing this book feeling very pessimistic about the state of the world. I mean, the pandemic had just started and I just felt very negative about how things were going generally. Um, You know, the election wasn't doing me any favors at the time either. And um, to see all these young people reflect on their experiences, it actually made me feel very hopeful. And I ended writing this book as an optimist, like just feeling like, all right, the future might actually be in good hands after all. This young generation, which is more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States might just have it in them to turn all this around. And that's how I left writing this book. So it felt great. Uh, The stories, I don't know how to choose one. I mean, Rodney Axon comes to mind from Brunswick, Ohio. Um, His story impresses me so much, not just because he is the answer to an important trivia question. Who was the first person to take a knee after Colin Kaepernick? It was Rodney Axon that very next weekend. But also the fact that Rodney was up against a lot. Like his family had moved from Cleveland to Brunswick. He was one of the few black kids in his school one of the few black kids in his suburbs and uh, being on the football team, hearing teammates use the N word like it was nothing coach, not doing anything about it. Looking at the killings that had taken place in that summer of 2016 of people like Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, two killings that were caught on, on uh, cell phone on, on iPhones and then became viral videos. He felt like he had to do something. And when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, he was like, I'm going to do that too. And he had so much, uh, I think like you use the word wisdom, like he had a lot of wisdom and a lot of perspective about why he was doing what he was doing. And the results though, that's when the story really begins. Like his coach turns on him. A lot of his teammates turn on him. Uh, he has to walk his sister to school because he's so worried about death threats, his little sister to elementary school. And so there's a lot there in his story that really does stick with me. Um, The other story that really sticks with me is the story of Garfield High School uh, for a couple of reasons. It's in Seattle. One, because the backlash they received was so intense. And when I say they, it's because the entire football team took a knee and the entire softball team took a knee at Garfield. And it was in Seattle. And you think of Seattle as kind of a liberal city. So clearly they would be feted for doing what they did. But instead, they, they reap the whirlwind. I mean, their coach Joey Thomas—he had his tire slashed. That's the football coach, and he was forced out of his job. Death threats were called into the school, um, it, it, and it just goes to show you that you know this isn't like some red state blue state phenomenon. This isn't about liberal or conservative. This is about anti-racists and racists, and there, there's racism everywhere. And all you got to do is sort of poke the hornet's nest. And that's what the students at Garfield did very proudly. And the other thing about the Garfield story that sticks with me is coach Joey Thomas, because one of the things that I try to explain in the book is that, you know, a lot of coaches stabbed these kids in the back afterwards, you know, did not support them. The whole idea of a team being as a family, that was out the window. Uh, but at the same time, you also had a few coaches who saw it differently. And it, it reminds me of the words of the, this former Baltimore cult who does coaching seminars named Joe Ehrman, who says there are two kinds of youth coaches, the transactional and the transformational and the transactional coach is someone who's in it just for them. And the transformational coach is someone who's in it for the kids, who's in it for actually how playing sports will change their lives. And put them on the road towards adulthood. And Joey Thomas was much more of that transformational coach. And that makes him special. And it it also explains why the whole team did it as one. And it wasn't just a one-person deal uh, by someone like the way it was for Rodney Axon. So that story sticks with me. And also talking to this woman on the softball team, Janelle Gary, who through the process of taking a knee really has become a lifelong activist. And it changed her irrevocably, just going through that process. And those are the stories that really stick with me. And as a last thing I'll throw in there is that I was really blown away by interviewing uh, Megan Rapino in the pro section because I've you know read, I mean it, it, other interviews with Rapino and about her experience, really being mm-hmm. the first prominent white athlete to take a knee after Colin Kaepernick. And it was it was just very interesting to talk to Megan Rapino about what it means to be a white ally, what it means to take a knee uh, for her, and how it differed from say someone like Colin Kaepernick or the other people I talk about. And Megan's desire for serious structural reform was something I hadn't heard her speak about before. and so I think that's a, a treasure in the book.
1: Yeah, the Rapino stuff was great. I- I mean, she's, you know, different in a couple ways. Um, one being that she's white. Um, and I wonder, uh, it's always tricky for for people like you and I, I'll, I'll speak for myself, who wants to be an ally and, and isn't always sure the best way to do that. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I have no doubt that the African-American community looks at white people and says, well, you know, Pass pass a meaningful legislation, right? Let's pass the John Lewis John Lewis Voting Bill. Let's um, let's revise the court system. Let's put an end to gerrymandering. There are, there are a whole bunch of ways that we can help the African community in African American community in that sense. Do you get the sense, in talking to the people you spoke to, that they want African Americans want white people? taking a knee with them? Do they want us protesting with them? Or do they feel that that's something that
0: they kind of need to do by themselves as a community? Well, it's very interesting because there's a certain discourse about that on the left in this country. And then sports kind of runs counter to this discourse in a way that I find very interesting because there are a lot of voices on the left who say you know, that white people should not be taking a knee you know, that they should, you know, put, put a mm-hmm. hand on the shoulder. So some form of course, sort of a distant solidarity. And you saw that a lot in the NFL. Um, but when I talked to the people from my book, it's like they, they, they wanted their white teammates to join in for a very simple tactical reason. Because for them, it's not an abstraction. To them, it's like, we will get threats after this. And if you're going to get threatened... You want as much solidarity in the face of that as possible. You want as many people taking the weight for that as possible. You don't want one person to be targeted. You don't want one person to be focused upon by some of the more violent forces in the right wing in this country. Because we have to remember, one of the things that binds all the stories in my book is this specter of violence, is this idea that violence could result from doing this. And in some cases, it did. And so this book is not some rosy view of, you know, everything's going to work out great if you take a knee. It's more like someone joked with me that the book is sort of like a, a protest version of what to expect when you're expecting, like, like what to <laughs> expect when you're protesting because of all the scenarios that, that go through it. And to me, it, what they wanted above all else was solidarity, and they wouldn't have cared if it was black, white, anything. Asian, Latino, anything—just just just more people who could be part of the mix for the purposes of their own safety.
1: And then the other the other way, uh, Megan Rapinoe is different. Is she's a woman, of course, and um, you know, like like so many things in this country, it seems like women kind of take a back seat in this movement. Um, They're not actually in the back seat. uh, Maybe that's the way it's portrayed. As we know, certainly. Nobody has been more forceful in this movement than than the WNBA, for example. Yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, it started with Cap and the whole taking a knee thing. I don't know. You know, I, you did a great job of of of, of uh, interviewing a number of cheerleaders for the book, which was great. So we got the female perspective. Um, but how, how in, in your experience talking to these people, how are the female athletes who decide to n- take a knee – how did their experience compare or contrast to male athletes,
0: well, if, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I do interview a significant number of female athletes in the book, partly because I couldn't include every story of people to be taken a knee, because there, there are literally hundreds of stories, um, and I couldn't even include all the people I interviewed, um, because what I wanted was, first of all, for the book not to be too long, but also because I wanted the book to be representative of what at least I perceived the movement to be in terms of numbers. So there are a healthy number of women who I speak with precisely because there were a healthy number of women in the movement itself. And so I needed really to have both in there. Um, And that, that was, you know, a great experience to get their perspectives. I mean, Sadly, you know, everybody in the book received some form of backlash. And for women, that backlash wasn't just about racism. It was about sexism, too. And so they had to deal with this extra lacquer of, of oppression and derision that male athletes simply didn't have to deal with. Now, that wasn't true in every single case, particular, but but when it didn't happen, it was more because of the amount of solidarity and support the, the women athletes had, which is the true regardless of, of sex or gender that in situations where there was support, uh, there was a different result.
1: Why is, I mean, cap became such a lightning rod on both sides. And why is the sports world and, and the, and these athletes, um, why do they evoke such reactions from people on these political type issues? You know more than I don't know if 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 an actress yeah. on Broadway took a knee or if Robert De Niro took a knee during the filming of a, a movie or something. I, of course, they don't play the national anthems in those scenarios, but I think you know where mm-hmm. I'm going. Why why do the athletes in particular? Um, Draw such a
0: response. Well, you know, when when Muhammad Ali had his title stripped in 1967, one of his most uh, bitter opponents, a guy named Floyd Patterson, famous boxer, of course, uh, said that he felt like Muhammad Ali was being was being forced to pay too high a price for his position on the draft in Vietnam. And the reason why he was being forced to pay this price was, as Patterson put it. Uh, the influence that uh, that boxing has, not that Ali has, but that boxing has on, as Patterson put it, uh, the working class people of the United States. And I think one of the reasons why the platform of athletes is p- policed so ruthlessly by both commercial and political interests is precisely because of the influence that they have on masses of people. I mean, sports is mass culture. Sports is the closest thing to a national language that we have in this country and athletes tend to be in the spotlight for a very short amount of time. So when they do protest, I think we as a public intuit that they're risking something in a way that say someone like George Clooney doesn't risk, you know, George Clooney can make a movie once every 10 years until he's 90, you know, an athlete has only a couple of years. And I think that risk that they embody Unfortunately, gives what they what they do meaning. See, without risk, it has much less impact. It actually is the risk and the response that it generates. Often a very racist, often a very violent response that really is what triggers everything else. Um, and we're and and so I think that that's a key part of it that we can't overlook. I also think that uh, you know this country is. Um, has overdosed on the drug of patriotism since 9-11. I mean, there's always been nationalism in this country, but the way it's been reflected through sports has been so over the top that when you actually see people uh, pushing back against it, which is what taking a knee during the anthem does, it's saying that you think there's a gap between what this country represents and what it delivers. Um, You know, there are people who are going to have a very, very sharp reaction to that, especially when it's black people doing it. And, I think sports then becomes a reflection and a shaper of how incredibly polarized this country is and how much racism there is in this country. So, I mean, those are all the reasons why I think it it had this um, very outsized impact. And of course, we can't overlook the fact that Colin Kaepernick was a quarterback in the National Football League and no sport is more popular than the NFL and no position is more esteemed than quarterback. So when you have a quarterback for an NFL team, particularly one who played in a Super Bowl, say, you know what, this movement matters more than whether or not I lose my career. I mean, that's a story. And it's a big one.
1: Dave, how will Kaepernick be remembered
0: 30 years from now, 50 years from now? Well, you know, there's this expression that history is written by the winners. So I think how Kaepernick, which unfortunately has way too much truth in it for my liking, and so if, uh, if, if the side of people who believe in racial justice actually is able to triumph and push this country forward, Kaepernick will be, will be remembered as a hero and somebody who inspired thousands of people like the, one I, the ones I talk about in my book. If we go backwards and if we lose and this country enters this right-wing spiral – um, as is currently being organized on a host of fronts. Um, Kaepernick will probably be remembered as a footnote. He'll be a little picture in in the in the history books with no real explanation of the movement or what he represented. In a lot of ways, I think he'd be remembered the way for so many decades Tommy Smith and John Carlos were remembered. Now this has changed in recent years, but you know their raising a fist at the sixty eight Olympics became very decontextualized from the broader movement. And just became this image, this kind of standalone image, and um, I think that uh, Colin Kaepernick will be remembered that way as this kind of standalone protest with very little context. If 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 the side of racial justice loses, yeah,
1: you know, we we talked a little bit about how impressive these so many of these young people are that you interviewed. How did? Um, talking to these people and writing this book, how did it impact you?
0: Whew. Uh, so strongly, so strongly, it made me feel more hopeful about the future. And there's nothing else I can say that wouldn't be higher praise for them. I mean, I, I've changed. I really have through doing this book. Like, I, I now believe that our primary task on this earth is to try to support this young generation and their efforts to change the world. And I'm talking about people born after the year 2000. Like, So I'm talking really young people who have a different vision for what this world should look like, have a different vision on a host of fronts. And I think we have a job to figure out how to support them most effectively because I don't want to fold my arms and be like, "Yay, you know, young generation, come save us!" Uh, instead, I want to figure out how to support them materially, ideologically, organizationally, whatever it takes. And you know, that's what I'm setting about doing in a, in, a, in a several different ways right now. Uh, and it's it, it's the task at hand.
1: You quote the great writer Howard Bryant in the preface to your book, saying. Just call it for what it is. Kneeling is a safe gesture now. No risk, no sanction. When it was a risk, very few people took it. Obviously, as he states, taking a knee is the same as it was five years ago. But are there still a lot of athletes taking a knee? And if so, does, is it still a powerful message? Yeah, I
0: think Howard is right and wrong. I think he's absolutely right that it's morphed over the years. But I think risk, and I think Howard would agree with me about this, is all about setting. Like it's not a big risk if it's a league sanctioned or a franchise owner sanctioned statement, Uh, then it just becomes like, you know, racialized capitalism, you know, like this effort to show fans, hey, we care, look at us. And it's very little different than the NFL for the United Way or whatever. Um, Let's put end racism in the end zone and all that stuff, that kind of faux branding Uh, but when it's a situation and I get emails like this now, since the publishing of the book, like once a week, when it's players doing it, when they're not supposed to be doing it in small towns, in colleges like Penn, where the basketball team has been doing it, uh, you know, they're just sitting during the anthem, but the, 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 uh, the message is very clear. I mean, this is very powerful. And so, again, we talked earlier about risk. It's about risk. There's still much of this country where taking this action is a risk. And when it contains risk, it contains power.
1: I have one final question for you, Dave, that I'd like to ask all my guests. But um, let me just say once again the name of Dave's book is The Kaepernick Effect Taking a Knee, Changing the World. And it's, as I said, it's just very inspiring. And I, I felt I felt the same, same way that that you did, Dave, in, in that um, after reading it, it, it was just so encouraging to know that there are so many young people out there um, with the wisdom and the courage and the dignity to to take on this fight. And um, and and I, I definitely came away from the book feeling a little more optimistic as, as a word you used. Um mm-hmm. So I, I encourage everybody to check out the book. Um, Dan, my last question for you is, what is your all-time favorite sports book?
0: <sighs> wow, what a question. You know, I read these things as a hobby. Um, and so choosing one, you're asking me to like choose between my kids. I mean, you should see myself. <laughs> it's got some dog-eared ones. So let me put it in two categories. Uh, the best political sports books ever written are, um, to me, Uh, Nike is a goddess Um, which I'm trying to remember who edited it it's a series of writings by women about women in sports Um, might even have to look it up right now just because I want to give proper respect excuse me for a moment we are departing from our usual programming (laughs) Um, to let you know that Nike is a goddess was edited by Lucy Danzinger uh, Lisa Smith and Maria, Mariah Burton Nelson. So it's, it's absolutely tremendous. Um, also uh, redemption song, the one I mentioned earlier by Mike Marcusy and sports world by Robert Lipsight. Those are my ones that are at the top of the list. Sports world is prophetic and brilliant. Uh, fast forward to biograph autobiographies I mean, Up for Glory by Bill Russell, The Wrong Stuff by Bill Lee, Ball Four by Jim Bouton. These are the ones that really top my list. And um, and then the books of David Marinus, a uh, great journalist. His writings about Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente, uh, the 1960 Olympics. Those, those are all books that demand to be read.
1: His uh, I had his son, Andrew, on on the
0: podcast. He's wr- He's written some excellent books as well. Yes, he has. Uh, Andrew's book about Glenn Burke is a favorite of mine, too. Maybe in a couple years, that'll enter the pantheon. You know, I got to let him sit with me for a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: All right. Well, Dave, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. It was, as I said, it was a real treat and, and I love the book.